You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Today we're going to be talking about honor. The word is honor. I'll be reading through the verses of uh, chapter 6 to 14. And it has to do a lot with honor. It's an important word. And I find myself asking, what is it? What is it? Whenever I hear the word, there's almost a visceral reaction. Emotions well up within me and I am, and I'm sure these same emotions well up within you, right? Thoughts of gratitude, admiration, respect, worthiness, they all surface when you hear the word honor. While we may not be able to verbally explain how to honor, we all have a deep emotional understanding of it because honor starts in the heart. Not in our heart, but in the heart of the one we honor. By heart, I mean the deep motivations. Honor starts in the deep motivations of the one we honor. We will find that the greatest honor we give is to those we know deeply in relationship. And secondly, for those we know deeply about. That is because without knowing deeply, or better said, without deep knowledge of a person, we are unable to understand why they act honorably. Why they act honorably. The, uh, I don't know what's going on here, but... The intentions behind their actions are not clear without this knowledge. We reserve honor for those that have done great things motivated by one thing, and that is love. And that is why when we think of honor, there is one name that drowns out every other name, and that is Christ. So before we begin with this passage, I'd like to lead us in a prayer. The prayer that we would glorify God today in this meeting because he is worthy of all our honor. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have been so merciful to us and that you continue to reveal yourself in wonderful ways. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts today to honor you, Lord God. That, Father, we would not honor, Lord, ourselves, but we would honor the one that gives us life, the one, Lord, that has the power to take it away. That, Father, through this scripture that we will be reading today, that we would come to a deeper knowledge of you so that we may honor you more perfectly. Father, we desire, Lord, that you be preeminent in our lives and that, Lord, your love resounds, Lord, within us and to those that are around us. Lord, we want to be, Lord, a church that honors you. We thank you, Lord. Amen. So before, uh, before we actually dig into the text, I want to mention two things in relation to honor that we'll be repeating at the end as well. These two things are, number one, the measure of honor that we give is directly related to the depth of knowledge we have for the one we honor. Number two, deeds do not make one honorable. What motivates their doing does. So once again, the measure of honor that we give is related directly to the depth of knowledge we have of the one we honor. And deeds do not make one honorable. What motivates their doing does. Right? In light of those, those two points, I, I want to now start with verse 6. Verse 6 here. 
A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. God starts here with a son honors his father and a servant his master. If you, uh, if you know other parts of Scripture, I'm sure you know this part. It goes right in alignment with another verse. We have all probably read it ourselves and have heard it read from this, maybe even from this pulpit, I'm not sure, but from many pulpits. That is the fifth commandment, which we find in multiple places in Scripture. It's in Ephesians 6, 2-3, Exodus 20, 12, Deuteronomy 5, 16. It says, Honor your father and mother, this, and, uh, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And in Ephesians 6, it actually says, This is the first commandment with a promise. I don't know about you, but this verse has been reinforced by repetition my whole life, from Sunday school teachers to parents and elderly members in the church, and obviously, it is good. It is good that they remind us of it often. Why? Because we find a great promise of a long life attached to the act of honoring our father and our mother. But I myself never really tackled the question of what is it to honor my parents. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And let me tell you, that's not very wise on our part. We understand it in general, right? Do good, we honor. Do bad, we don't honor but it's deeper than that. I mean, if something is scripturally promised to affect your very life, positively or negatively, it is wise to pay attention. By negatively, let me remind you of what comes just later uh, in Exodus 21, 17, just a chapter after that promise of that command. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So life and death with an honor and cursing. So to honor or to curse, this is a very serious command, yet many of us have settled with superficially reading these texts and moving on. And this creates a serious problem. For us, how do we expect to please God without understanding his command? As I have already mentioned, a knowledge, right, in those first two points, a knowledge of the intentions of one's heart is necessary, engaging if one is worthy to be honored. First, we need to understand that ultimately there is only one worthy of honor, and that is God. For we are all fallen and sinful, and our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That truth, though, seems to present a problem. Why then does God repeatedly remind us to honor our mother and our father when they are fallen themselves? I believe that is because at the level of fallen human relationship, Parent exposes, parenthood exposes humanity to a near unconditional love. Why do I say near? Because the only perfect love is from our Heavenly Father, God. We know that even with the depth of love that we have for our children, we still fail to be consistent in our application of it. We know that daily we make mistakes and we regret many things looking back, but our intentions, the motivations of our heart, our love for our children. This is a common grace that God has given us as parents. So why are our parents worthy of honor? First and foremost, they are worthy of honor because God commands it. But also because in everything they do for us, they intend it for good, even though because of sin, their intention does not always align with what is actually good. 
Going back to the text, God mentions after uh, a son honors his father, a servant his master, right? The love of a master is far less than that of a father. But similarly, a good master must also be honored because a good master knows that he is responsible for his servant and he knows that loyalty and dependability are cultivated with love. A good master does not wish harm, but health for his servant. There we go. So once again, a good master does not wish harm, but health for his servant. Then God shifts from speaking about worldly relationships of authority between one another to relationship with him. In the next portion we read, If I am then a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? God is the perfect father, therefore worthy of all honor, because his heart and intention for us is always good, and all that he allows in our lives is for our betterment. When we know and believe that, our hearts will naturally change. We will not do out of fear, but out of love. We will seek to fulfill all his commands in a way that exalts his name. That is what honor is. Honor is the humble response of our heart to the knowledge of his. It is his heart being reflected. As his intentions are always for the good, so we begin to want only what is good for him and his name and are broken and ashamed when we fail in doing that. This is obviously far from what we will see here with the priests and what we have seen so far. God is revealing here in this, in this second part, if then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear? He is re- revealing they are nowhere near this. God is saying, if in human relationships there is a requirement of honor and fear, how is it that in the sacred relationship with him, not only is there no honor, but there is no fear? That is why God says, if I am master, where is my fear? Instead of where is my honor? He changes it up. Initially, it's honor for both, but here he changes it to fear. That is because fear is the minimum requirement. God is saying, if you don't see me as father, okay, then at least you should fear me as master. But that is nowhere to be found among you. Is it, any, is it of any curiosity to us that Scripture states in Proverbs 1, verse 7, fear is the beginning of knowledge? Right? We cannot honor if we do not know. And we cannot know if we do not fear. That is because the first thing you learn about God or about anyone that is in a superior role to you is the level of authority they have. It comes with a name. They have a title, usually. And that guides how we interact with them. Would you speak the same way to the CEO of a company you work for as you do to the regional manager? Absolutely not. The only way you would is if you do not know he was the CEO. Once you understand his authority, there is a natural fear that comes with it, even if he is the nicest guy you met at the office party last year. This is why the priests, just a short time after returning from exile and building a new temple, were failures in their roles. They did not know him at all because they did not believe the God of Scripture. And without knowledge of him, they did not fear. 
When one is exposed to the creator of the universe, the one that breathes life and takes it, the one that can not only destroy this body, but can destroy soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, verse 28, that should bring a healthy amount of fear. Unfortunately, even in that we fail to fear as we should. But one day there will be an appropriate amount of fear for all who stand before him, especially for those who have neglected and despised the truth. So fear is actually merited. You give it to the person that should be feared because he's, do, he's done things to make you fear. Just as honor is merited, right? Both will result, both will result in obedience. And at first glance, both appear similar. But there are some distinctions between fear and honor. Fear is a response to a threat. And when it ceases in being a threat, it subsides. On the other hand, honor does not cease. We know this because to this day, we still honor many men and women that are dead and gone because they live lives of sacrifice and selflessness. Honor remains permanently attached to the name of the one worthy of it while fear ceases when the one that was feared dies or is taken down by another. Right? Do we still fear Hitler? No. Do we still fear Stalin? Absolutely not. Even the dictators around the world that have the ability to cause harm to us, right? Nuclear weapons. We don't live in constant fear of them because they are too far removed. What God is saying to them when he says, where is my fear? You fear your worldly leaders, yet you treat me as if I am dead. As if I am so far removed, I have no power. How else do you not fear, how else do you not fear the creator of the universe except that you do not know him or believe in him? The thing about fear is that it must always have the boot on your neck for you to stay compliant. And if it shows mercy, it is seen as weakness. That is why we see the priests in that day treating God's mercy as weakness instead of a gift, instead of an opportunity to repent. Don't get me wrong. Fear of God is good. It creates a humble mindset and leads to uprightness. But the world uses fear as a tool to constrain and manipulate so that they can subjugate. Fear that is used in that way is extremely powerful. So powerful that it can make people do atrocious things that go completely against their own conscience. They go completely against their own conscience. Yet the amount of fear that was in the priesthood could not even motivate them to obedience. Crazy, isn't it? Fear in the heart of man that does not lead to knowledge is a manipulative and deceitful fear. It is a fear focused on self rather than on God. It is the same type of fear that, that evil rulers of this world use to manipulate because that type of fear because that type of fear is manipulative, the servant will equally be manipulative in his service. What do I mean by that? Servants living in fear alone will be devious. They will take shortcuts wherever they can and not do only minimum, the minimum necessary. By that I mean they will not seek to do the best they can for their master, but rather only what is explicitly told of them to. In other words, they will bring dishonor rather than honor. For example, imagine you are a good boss. 
You give people a lot of chances. You extend grace because you remember that you needed it when you first started. So you give a new responsibility to your employee. Please add notes to the file of every customer that was spoken to today because you know you will need them when you do follow-up calls. You ask if he's been adding the notes. He says yes. You decide to look back and you see that there's a note attached to every client file that was called yesterday and you are pleased. But you decide to give a call to one of those clients to get some more information and when you open up the note, you see what has been written. It says, writer spoke to client regarding policy on 10-11-2019. No information. That's it. At first glance, it looked good, but because the heart is detached from the doing and only motivated by the fear of reprimand, everything is done minimally. And this happens to a greater extent when the authority above you is loving and merciful. That is how many of us offer things to God. We do the minimum. Our relationship has not passed from the lower rung of fear. Not the lower, the lowest rung of fear. Therefore, we take advantage of his mercy. And if there is no fear, we are worse than the demons because even they tremble. If there is no fear, we do what we want, when we want. We live as the world. So search your hearts. Is there fear of the living God? At minimum. Then the Lord moves on and he says, The Lord of hosts to you, says, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests that despise my name. We have already seen this last week in verses 1 through 5. The Lord of hosts. God is called the Lord of hosts. In, in Jewish, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's Adonai Tzavaot, which I'm sure all of us have heard probably. If not, uh, it's new. Adonai Tzavaot. Interestingly, interestingly, this title appears most frequently in the book of Malachi. That is because at this point, Judah was tiny. They were weak surrounded by enemies. They had no army and still under Persian rule. He reminds him that he is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of Tzava or Tzavaot. Tzava means army. He is the Lord of armies and the priests are the ones who despise his name. So he can be the source of their strength and freedom, yet they despise him. Pretty twisted, isn't it? Just like Israel, we do the same. We tend to run like a chicken with its head cut off during difficulty rather than to God, the Lord of armies. Even though we are well aware that the Lord is able to free us of all our stress and fear. And he is the only one worthy of honor. That's a problem. He says, they despise my name. This means they treat it as vile. Or an easy way to understand it is, if you look at the first few letters of, of despise, it works perfectly with despicable. They're, they're hand in hand. It means deserving of hatred or contempt instead of honor and fear. Right? They treated him as worthless. And the priests answer. Finally, the priests answer him. They answer with a question which is a little bit manipulative. They don't give him an answer, but they answer with a question. How have we despised your name? How? By their twisted reasoning, they were still performing the how. That is why they say how. They were performing their priestly duties, 
the appearance of what was happening by an onlooker would have looked okay. This question would have been successful with anyone else. The question reveals what they think about God, what their heart thinks about God. They treat him as a man, as someone that can be deceived. Because the only people to know what was going on is the one bringing the sacrifice and the priest presenting it to God. If God does not see that they, it's, it's as if God does not see that they offer him scraps. This indictment appears to be directed right at the priests, but it is equally to all of Israel because they were the ones bringing these sacrifices. Israel had no knowledge of God. They were living a delusion. The ones that would bring the polluted food would only bring it because they knew the priests were not doing good quality control. And the priest would act willfully ignorant, ignorant upon receive, receipt of that offering so that if God says, hey, uh, I see what you're doing, they can say how, right? Just as they said before. How? We're doing what you ask. They act as foolish children. It's like a child that you tell to put their clothes away and when you look at their room, all the clothes are just thrown in the dressers and thrown on the shelves in their closet. And when you confront them as to why they lied to you, they say, how did I lie? My clothes are put away, aren't they? Everything is put away. It's not a big deal, right? They know that you expect a higher standard. And this is what results when you attempt to survey God you do not know. It is done in haste with superficiality. And it is acceptable to every other God because they are gods of man's creation. But our God is not. And even today in the churches in the U.S., I think there's a, a, a movement of comfortableness, of comfort, with a standard that is less than what God expects, and we expect him still to receive our offering anyway. We do not seek to change our ways, but expect him to change his. That is why we must strive to know him and remind ourselves daily of who he is so we don't fall into that. God tells them afterward, let me answer you, right? God says, you're offering polluted food on my altar. And the priests respond with another question. How have we polluted you? Once again, not a sincere question to, their, to, to God's uh, indictment. It's not a question from ignorance, but a twisting of what was said to them. While sin may blind us, I believe this is a method of numbing their conscience. And that is why they reply this way. It is the desire to justify their sin, right? The claim is one of offering polluted food. They do not ask what polluted food because that's obvious. They know clearly what's polluted. They are trying to navigate around the issue. They are practically saying, okay, fair enough, the food is polluted. But it's just food. It's just food on an altar, you're still the same God. How does it affect you? Back to the child analogy. It's, it's as if you told your child your room is still a mess. It's just hidden from sight. And your child says, gosh, Dad, why does it bother you? Why are you so bothered? How does it affect you? Just don't look at it. What they were really saying to God is, come on, join this delusion. Play the game, right? It's a good game. Come on, just act like it's all, all okay. We, do, we don't have to ruin this. We can continue to cheat in our duties. Don't look into the details. The form is still there. Isn't that enough? 
These priests do not intercede for the people. Rather, they delude them into damnation. That is because they benefit from this delusion. They are lovers of self. They are disobedient. They are ungrateful. They are unholy, heartless, reckless, swollen with conceit. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. They oppose the truth. They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. Does that sound familiar? That's because it is. These are the attributes that are listed in 2 Timothy 3, and they fit perfectly for them. The same sins visible in Malachi's time have not seemed to change. And those same sins plague our time as well. Sweeping sin under the rug or normalizing it does not resolve the issue. It only complicates it. They dishonor God because they are very pleased to cheat and to have his name debased for their own pleasure. Malachi verses 1, 8 through 10. We'll be moving on to those verses. Let's read those. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to, to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh that, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors and that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. So what does God say here? He's saying, I'm not falling for it. God does not fall for their attempts to circle the issue, but brings to light the very sin they didn't want to expose. He does this because truth has power to disinfect. This is his mercy. I know what you're doing. Change. God tells them that they have said the Lord's table may be despised. And I'm pretty certain they did not explicitly say this to anyone, by word at least, but rather it was herald, heralded loudly through their deed. The standards that we set and keep, right, in our families and in our churches, they will speak loudest, just like the deeds that they were setting, the standards they were setting were speaking loudest of all. And that's why everyone knew this in Israel and everyone lived this way. Similarly, we should not fall for any attempt to hide sin in our midst, but should seek to expose it with truth and love, right? Their, their offerings were a reflection of the honor they had for God or the lack of it. They were offering blind animals that were lame and sick. Imagine this. These were cheap offerings. It cost them nothing. The act of giving that type of animal was not... It, it was not only evil, it's self-serving, which is still evil, but it's even worse almost. Blind animals are a headache. They require a lot of care. And similarly, lame animals are useless. You can't work with them. And the sick animals were a danger for the other livestock. And many times, it would die. So you would separate it so the others wouldn't get sick from it. But instead of doing that, they said, hey, I've got an idea. Why not give it to God? I won't even have to do the work of disposing the body. 
the priests will take it off my hands and I will be ritually forgiven. The temple, literally and figuratively, became a dumpster for the animals they would, they would have had to dispose either way, right? The priests made the temple of God a dumpster. It's evil. And the priests were taking these offerings and burning them on the altar. The priests had made the temple not only into a dumpster, but a dumpster fire. We all know that word, right? A dumpster fire. They literally made it into a dumpster fire. While the people were horribly wrong to do this, bringing these horrible offerings to the priests, the priests were even more at fault. They set the standard, right? And they allowed the standards to fall so low that the people of Israel honored their livestock more than they did God. They would offer up their sick animals to God out of a desire to care for their animals, right? Rather than to serve the eternal king, the one worthy of honor. Imagine the spiritual state of loving your livestock more than you love God. You don't have to imagine, actually. I think that exists today. We see TV shows about this even, right? Many people today spend more time with and more resources on their pet than they do with God. Is it any wonder God says to them, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Does that not stir within you anger? You can hear it, right? Brokenness. Oh, that one of you would shut the doors and not burn this evil thing on my altar. There was not one that honored or feared God. The whole priesthood was perverse. These priests were not realizing that in demeaning God, they demeaned themselves because they represented God in Israel. That is why without God, we revert to foolishness, all of us. The priests were well aware that the gifts that were being presented by the Israelites to the governor, right, that was placed by Persia, they were a far greater quality than the offerings being presented to God. And you see the heartbreak of God, right, telling his people that they are hardened, right? I am the Lord of armies, he says, three times there. It's as if he's saying, stop, you're worshiping your, your rulers, but I'm the Lord of armies. You feel weak, you feel oppressed, and you give him better service than you do me. Come to me. I want to liberate you, yet you embrace oppression. You despise me and honor the one which oppresses you, right? They feared man more than they feared the creator. Now Malachi 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God alludes here to something. He alludes to a coming time when they will cease to be necessary. He's telling the priest that. A time when incense will be offered to his name in every place, alluding to the fact that we will one day worship him and we will have a permanent high priest, a new perfect covenant. 
And now looking back, we know he was speaking of a time that would come 400 years later with the birth, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through this, we see that he is in control even through those dark times in Malachi's time. God was in control. He is able to put out even the worst of dumpster fires. And uh, I'm a testament to that. And I think you guys are as well, right? And finally, the truth is revealed. We've been hearing these questions from uh, last week. Uh, how have you loved us, right? How have we done this? How have we done that? Um, it's, it's, it's almost annoying. Just be honest. He knows. He's telling you he knows. And in Malachi verse, chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, he says, But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts, once again, reminding them. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared amongst the nations. What a weariness this is. Do we ever feel that? What a weariness this is. Moody said it great. He said, um, I get tired in the work, but I never get tired of it. Unfortunately, it's the opposite for many of us. We get tired of it. We become weary. We don't serve him like we should, right? But here they finally respond with the truth. Their intentions laid bare. They seek to serve self. Once they see that God will have no part of their delusion, their heart speaks, revealing their contempt of the God they serve. There are only two ways to respond to a personal sin being revealed and that is contempt or repentance. And here we see that God made it clear what he expected, yet they chose contempt. They did not want to change. They loved their dumpster. They loved their dumpster. Right? Proverbs 26 verse 11 says, Like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. They are the dogs that return to their vomit. And so are we when we are faced with the truth, yet continue to choose delusion. If you notice the temptation to run back to the vomit, run back to the bread of life, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I promise you, it'll taste better. <laughs> Cursed be the cheat, he says, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The second part of what we read just earlier. Does this remind us of anyone? I think it does. It reminds me of someone. Ananias and Sapphira. Pretending to give their best. Yet we're trying to cheat God by giving less. How do we do that? Do we do that? And similarly, it reminds me of Isaiah, right? 
saying, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It hadn't changed. It's still the same. They, they draw near to him with their lips, and their hearts are far from them. Even the fear that he expected of them, it was just a commandment taught by man. And when it's a commandment taught by man, it, has, it doesn't have the same weight as a commandment of God. We must remember, no matter what we give, it is still nothing in comparison to the gift of salvation that Christ has given us. There is no impressing God. So be honest. Give Him the little you can. Your heart. Right? That is what He wants. So let me repeat those last two points here again. The measure of honor that we give is related directly to the depth of knowledge we have of the one we honor. Do you know God? Do you search to know God? Because your honor will, will, will reflect that. What you honor will reflect that. We must feed on Scripture and speak to our Lord daily so that the response to please Him never diminishes and only increases with each passing day. Because why? He is worthy of it. He is worthy of it, right? And here we see what makes someone worthy. Number two, the deeds of a man do not make one honorable. Rather, it is the intentions of those deeds that make one worthy of honor. There is not another whose intentions are laid out more clearly than that of our Lord Jesus Christ that was compelled by love to give his life for an undeserving people. Let us abhor what is evil, right? Let us not live like the priests of Malachi's day, seeking only to serve self rather than God, but let us strive to know him more deeply so that we may honor him with all of our being. And why is that? Just like he ends, because he is a great king. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.